Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Before we bring this reading, let us pray. Heavenly Father, give us wisdom and understanding as we listen to your word. May we know you better, love you more, and learn to praise you in all we do. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So today's reading is from Exodus 22, beginning at the first verse. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard, let them stray and they graze in someone else's field. The offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. If anyone gives a neighbour silver or goods for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbour's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which somebody says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declares guilty must pay back double for the other. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep or any other animal to their neighbour for safekeeping and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by taking an oath before the Lord that the neighbour did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbour, restitution must be made to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the neighbour shall bring in the remains as evidence and shall not be required to pay for the torn animal. If anyone borrows an animal from their neighbour and it is injured or dies while the owner is not present, they must make restitution. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower will not have to pay. If the animal was hired, the money paid for the hire covers the loss. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. 
whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy and do not treat it like a business deal, charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Thanks be to God indeed. So um, some of you may know that before I trained to be a minister, I actually spent five misguided years training to be a lawyer. And um, I'm pretty much useless to you if you get arrested or Uh, If you get a speeding ticket, I don't know why Brian's smiling at that. Um, I can't help, um, sorry, because all I remember is uh, the weird and wonderful cases from the world of law. I really love the case um, about the jury who consulted a Ouija board and uh, they summoned the ghost of the murdered victim to check if they got the right guy. And the ghost uh, confirmed that they got the right guy and they convicted him. But on appeal, the judge found that there'd been a mistrial because no one is allowed to interfere with the jury room, not even the ghost of the dead man. So I enjoyed that case. I enjoyed the uh, case about the the lawyer who um, broke up with his, his girlfriend but then sued to get back some of the expensive gifts that he'd given her. And uh, he took this all the way to the Supreme Court And the judge found two things. Firstly, legally, yes, he has a right to get those gifts back, but also legally, he is a jerk. And so the judge published in full uh, all the man's love poetry so that generations of law students could read and laugh at this pathetic gentleman. I think it was a firm but fair judgment myself. Uh, I say this because we've, um, I'm reminded of these because we're looking at um, random laws or seemingly random laws from uh, after the Ten Commandments in Exodus, Moses' miscellany. Uh, this is the case law. We've had the, 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 the principles of the Ten Commandments. Now here is Moses confronting the everyday random situations that arise and trying to point towards justice, trying to uh, find where the heart of God is into these imperfect situations. And we saw last week um, when I spoke, or two weeks ago, when we spoke about uh, the laws about slavery, God's heart for the uh, vulnerable people economically who are enslaved. Uh, This week, we're going to have a look at two uh, principles, firstly, to do with the seduction of virgins, and secondly, to do with how we treat vulnerable outsiders. So let's uh, take a look. Um, This first one, chapter 22, verse 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, then he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. 
Now, this sort of verse sometimes gets a bit of a, a bad rap as sort of like yet more evidence of patriarchal oppression. Uh, and there is quite a lot of patriarchal oppression going on here in this verse. But we've got to be careful that we're good travellers and not mistake the situation for the destination. Right? The situation that's being spoken into is one of patriarchal oppression. But the destination being pointed to is something quite different. Uh, people sometimes even describe this as a law which requires uh, women to marry their rapists. It's not that at all. The, the penalty for rape in the Old Testament is death. Right? There's no marriage happening after that. This is talking about a situation which uh, seems to be consensual and what happens after that and whose rights are protected. So remember, we're looking at the destination, right? Not the situation, the imperfect situation being confronted, but where these laws point us to, how we're to retrieve justice out of them. Because that shows us the heart of God, doesn't it? When we see where God is pointing us to the destination. So um, the, the patriarchal marriage customs are definitely part of this situation. They're, they're not unique to old, the Old Testament Israel. They're very common in the ancient world and continue today in many traditional societies. The idea that a parent should choose, the parents, or in this case the father, should choose who his daughter marries is very common. So is the idea that you pay a moha, a, um, a bride price, um, for uh, handing over your daughter. Now, uh, we find that confronting, absolutely, the idea that you should pay for a daughter, but that's, that's part of the setting, that's part of the situation. The question we should be asking is, who is vulnerable to being abused and misused in this system? Where does the power imbalance lie and who is vulnerable, right? And when we see the situation of the, the young couple who are um, having what appears to be a consensual affair, there's a big difference in the implications for both of them the next day. Right? It's not fair what happens after that. Right? For, the, for the woman, the implications are, are significant, right? life-changing. Right? She's, it's a patrilineal culture, which means that people care a lot about whose child she might be carrying in the future. And so having uh, had this affair, her marriage prospects are slim to none. Right? No one is going to want to marry her. Um, culturally, that makes her extremely vulnerable because she can't just get a job. LinkedIn hasn't been invented yet. Uh, there's very few opportunities for her as a woman in this world. And so her choices are uh, if her parents are rich, she can live with them until, the, until they die, or she can uh, go into prostitution or starve to death. Right? These are limited options, and that's in the good, that's in the, the, the best case scenario where she doesn't get pregnant. If she does get pregnant, then there's some, a whole world of other even worse options uh, on the table for her. That's for the, the young woman. What are the implications for the young man? Well, basically nothing. In fact, not only does he get to walk away with his reputation and his marriage prospects completely intact, no one cares if he's a virgin or not. No one cares if he's carrying someone's child. He can't get pregnant. But in fact, his situation economically and socially is actually improved because now he, if he likes this girl, can go to the father and say, I'm going to offer you a cut price deal on your daughter, one time only. I will pay you maybe 10% of the bride price. And the father has no other option. So if he wants to get a wife on the cheap, this is a good way of doing it. What a charming gentleman he turns out to be. Okay, so that's the situation. That's just the ancient world. That's not what Moses is pointing us towards. It's just the situation he's confronting. So what does Moses say? What's God's word into the situation? Well, he turns the tables. He turns the power dynamic on its head and he gives 
all the choices to the woman's father, right, who's protecting her interests. Either um, she, the, the woman's father can make the young man marry her, right, uh, a forced marriage contract on him. Or if they don't like the cut of his jib, which fair enough, they can make him pay the bride price anyway and not get the girl so that they now have a trust fund to support her into her future. Right? And the bride price we know from the parallel passage in Deuteronomy is actually 50 shekels of silver, which is what Pharaoh paid for members of his harem. Right? It's about the same price as um, a, a full able-bodied adult male slave redemption. Right? So this is not a cut price dowry. Right? This is top dollar. So if you're a young man thinking that you might have a, a little bit of fun and take advantage of a young woman, you better be prepared to pay top dollar to look after her interests the next day. Be prepared to take responsibility. Uh, Sandra Richter uh, has a great article in Jets this last month where she she um, describes how these laws reflect the ideals or kind of the destination for the society in terms of justice. She says this, the law serves to protect her, that is the young woman, from the economic and social fallout of this encounter. The man who hoped for an uncomplicated affair is now saddled with all the standard responsibilities of marriage. Walkaway Joes were required to man up. I've never heard that phrase before, but I love it. Walkaway Joes were required to man up as regards the woman they had compromised and the potential children they had created. And um, Sandra Richard's article is really great too because it compares this to other ancient Near Eastern codes, right, where they were very concerned about their virgin daughters, but it was more about avenging the honour of the father. And so some of the um, penalties would be things like revenge rape or forced marriage um, or even honour killings to protect the honour of the patriarch. But here the interest seems to be two things. Firstly, protecting the future and the rights of the woman. Even though it was a consensual affair, it recognises the power imbalance is unjust. And secondly, it seems to be more about restoring holiness in the community than avenging some injured honour on behalf of the patriarch. Now, for all our um, self-proclaimed moral superiority, I actually think this has a lot to say into our society and even into our evangelical church culture. Uh, Facebook tells me this week that one of my friends is uh, is really struggling, and I'm not surprised because her situation is is quite difficult. Uh, I knew her. I met her when she was a uni student. We were both students um, at the Christian Union uh, back in Sydney, and uh, she was studying art. But basically, her life has no room for art anymore because now she has a young boy. A few years ago, um, she was uh, in a really low point in her mental health, and she met this charming non-Christian guy. I never liked him. And uh, basically, he seduced her, right? He, he, I think, took advantage of her uh, vulnerability because of her mental health. And she ended up literally carrying the baby. Now, he's long gone, right? Uh, she's now a single mum uh, trying to work a job while looking after this kid full time, juggling these impossible demands. That's even without a lockdown on top of it. And the dad, well, what are the consequences for him? Absolutely nothing. His life has gone on completely unchanged. Uh, she posted just the other day, which made me think of her, that she has has to go to a meeting at the kids' school, an urgent meeting with one of the parents, with one of the teachers, um, and she appealed to the father to help look after the kids so she could go to this meeting, and he said no, which he can do. All right? He has a choice. She doesn't. 
And the asymmetry here, I think, is repeated all the time. Any, any youth group leaders here or people who've uh, been in uh, pastoral ministry for a while, you will have seen this situation a thousand times. The implications of these sorts of unfortunate uh, one-night stands or whatever are really asymmetrical and they do not uh, work in the favour of women. There are, I think, 25% or 22% of uh, families in Australia are single-parent families. Take a wild guess how uh, whether they're majority male or majority female-headed. It's actually 87% of them are headed by a female. Women are literally left holding the baby. And I think we need to reflect on this in terms of our church culture and how we speak into broader society as well. Right? We preach against abortion, but do we make it easy to support women who are left holding the baby? I remember a youth group leader of mine saying there should be more young babies, there should be more teen pregnancies in this church because we know they're having sex. So where are the babies? All right. And if we as a church are going to be different, we need to embody God's heart here of actually concerning ourselves practically to address the asymmetry of the implications. That's the first one. Uh, the second principle I want to grab out here is the concern for the vulnerable outsider. All right, we've seen how Moses has come to this point, standing at Mount Sinai. He's rescued a whole group of um, vulnerable outsiders, uh, sojourners out of Egypt, and brought them to the promised land. That experience of being foreigners, of being slaves, will shape how they think about themselves, or it should shape how they think about themselves, but also how they behave towards other vulnerable outsiders. This is from uh, verse 21 of um, chapter 22. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and you cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless, in case you hadn't figured out what that would mean. All right. God is serious. All right. And they know what happens to people when God hears their cry. That's what happened in Egypt. God heard their cry and things did not go well for Pharaoh. So here God is saying, if you do the same thing, if you oppress the sojourner, you can expect the same treatment. I will hear their cry. Uh, sojourner here, by the way, often trans translates sojourner. It's the, the ger right, in Hebrew. There's a, a really unfortunate misunderstanding, which is popular particularly in North America, that the ger only, only refers to documented legal immigrants, which is rubbish, right? It means a vulnerable outsider, someone outside your clan, a displaced person. How do you become displaced? Well, war or famine. Famine is actually how Israel ended up in Egypt in the first place, isn't it? All right? These vulnerable people outside the clan protection are very, very vulnerable. And uh, so a resident alien or migrant or refugee probably captures something of it. I was having a, a chat to a friend of mine, a guy called Jay. Um, he's a, he works as a cleaner. He's originally from Korea. And uh, he came to Australia and um, sort of got off the uh, train at Flinders Street when he came to Melbourne the first time. And something about the picture behind me really confused him. Right, I don't know if you can sort of see what's behind me, but it's the it's head office. Uh, it's the Anglican Cathedral, those of you who are Anglicans. And he saw, I think just above one of my ears, he saw this sign, which is just a little bit too small probably to read, which says, let's fully welcome refugees. 
And he said, well, that's a bit strange because that's a Christian building and all the Christians I know back home are awful people who hate people who are different to them and like oppressing outsiders. What's going on here? Now, he was genuinely confused to meet Christians in Australia who liked refugees, who thought that it was important to treat them. And it was a good conversation to have because I said, look, I don't know who your friends were back home in Korea, but they've misunderstood the heart of God. And we know that from places like this in the book of Exodus, God's attitude towards refugees, God's attitude towards vulnerable outsiders is that if we've been met by God while we were outsiders, if we've been brought in while we were outsiders, we need to do the same. And there's countless places in the Old Testament which um, tell us that, in the New Testament as well. Christians at their best, I told him, have always found ways to include the vulnerable outsider in their community, to welcome them, embrace them into their uh, family and their community. I was um, really moved uh, to read recently a book by two friends of mine, uh, Mark and Luke Lanville. It's called Refuge Reimagined, and I think you can find it in the library. They talk about this idea of welcoming outsiders. What, what could this look like in a properly running church? What could the church do to welcome properly outsiders? And they, um, they tell this um, amazing story. I've got a, a picture from the news um, here to, to show you here. Basically what happened is um, in 2015 there, there were a bunch of uh, racists in America who organised on Facebook in Phoenix, Arizona to turn up and surround a mosque, right, to bring their guns and to burn Korans and to shout insults. And they organised on Facebook and they had lots of people ready to turn up and the organisers told them, you turn up with your guns and better be ready to use them. Right? That's what the sort of antagonism they're, they're expecting. Now, keep in mind, this mosque in, in Phoenix, Arizona, was actually the centre of a Syrian uh, community who'd just been, you know, come from a war zone, were already traumatised. And you can imagine the impact of having a whole bunch of angry rednecks surrounding them with guns burning Korans would be. What a way to welcome them, welcome a vulnerable people to a country. Anyway, a bunch of Christian pastors saw this post on Facebook a few hours before the event was meant to happen. And they thought, this is, we can't let this happen. So they organised for Christians to come and stand between the angry redneck gun people and the Syrian refugees on the inside. And they're the people you can see behind me holding up uh, signs about loving your neighbour and welcoming refugees. Uh, it was really amazing, actually. More people turned up to protect the refugees from the angry rednecks than actually turned up for the, the protest. And the idea was, they explicitly said, the idea was if anyone's going to shoot, it's going to hit a Christian before it hits a Muslim. What was really moving to me is to find this Facebook post. I, I looked it up on, um, this was 2015, so it was a few years ago, but it was still on Facebook. This is a Muslim posting on social media talking about how there were more Christians turned up to support the Syrian refugees than there were angry redneck people turning up to intimidate them and that they hoped that they would do the same in return if the situation was 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 shifted. Now, I, I'm really moved by that, friends. I think that, is, that isn't at the heart of God, to welcome vulnerable outsiders, to embrace them, literally embrace them and protect them in a situation where they have few options, they have few protectors, and are they most vulnerable? Because if we have been welcomed by God when we were outsiders, then that is part of our identity just as the Israelites were welcomed uh, into freedom from slavery in Egypt. 
And so we, if we're followers of Jesus, need to be looking for ways to embrace the outsider. Now, we may not get the situation like this with like angry gun people and the drama of that. But I think of a a retired couple from church who make a point of inviting international students over for lunch every Sunday. We know international students are some of the most vulnerable people, right? Open to shady characters abusing them, far from home. Often, you know, they're young uni students, they don't have their life together. They're vulnerable. And, you know, the Australian government asks them when they go home, did you see the inside of an Australian's house? Most of the time, the answer is no. They never saw the inside of an Australian's house. But many of them will have seen the inside of my friend Rosie's house because they, she makes sure that they invite them over. And I, I think that's beautiful. And I want to encourage us to uh, work for ways in our church community to reflect this heart of God, which we see here in the Moses uh, miscellany, the strange laws from Exodus. I'm going to uh, pray now that we could uh, reflect this heart and uh, I'd love you to pray with me. Almighty God, you have rescued us out of slavery to sin and given us a home, an identity, which we did not have before. I pray that this would so shape our sense of self and would shape the way we see other people, that when we meet people who are different to us, we would embrace them. When we see the vulnerable, we would embrace them. And uh, I pray this for your glory and for the good of us and our churches and our communities. Amen.